President Joe once had a dream The world held his hand, gave their pledge So he told them his scheme for a saviour machine They called it the prayer, its answer was law Its logic stopped war, gave them food Hello and welcome to episode 1902 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Let me give you three player performances over certain spans. Somewhat arbitrary spans, but interesting nonetheless. Okay. Best hitter in baseball since August 10th. Minimum 80 plate appearances. So there are 212 players who have had 80 or more plate appearances since August 10th. Would you care to hazard any guess as to who has been the best of them offensively in that span? Mike Trout. Close. Albert Pujols. Ah! (laughs) Former teammate of Mike Trout's. Albert Pujols has out-hit Aaron Judge and everyone else since August 10th. I don't understand what is happening here. It's wonderful. He has hit 346, 393, 802 with 11 home runs since August 10th. 227 WRC Plus with a 288 BABIP, which is probably high for Albert Pujols at this point. But still, it's incredible. And Not only has he been the best hitter in baseball on a per-plate appearance basis, he's actually hit righties over that span pretty well, too. Like, we talked about how he had become an ultimate lefty masher. Yeah. And he still has a big platoon split on the season. His TOPS plus against right-handed pitching is one of the 50 lowest ever minimum 150-plate appearances. Thank you, Stathead. But his most recent homer, 697, the one that vaulted him above A-Rod on the all-time home runs list, that was off a righty, and he has a 125 WRC plus against righties over that same span. And it really is like the old Pujols is back, or the old Pujols is gone and the young Pujols is back. I was trying to find a similarly torrid stretch earlier in his career, and I almost couldn't. I looked at 30 game spans, no particular reason why I chose 30, just seemed like a good number and I went to his fangraphs game logs and looked at his rolling WRC plus over his past 30 games and so the high point this year was on August 23rd at that point his rolling WRC plus over the past 30 games was 251 so I looked back over the rest of his career and it just goes back to 2002 so it doesn't have his rookie season but post 2002 the only 30 game stretch I could find where he had hit that well was in mid-July of 2009 that was his last MVP year when he had a 254 WRC plus over a 30 game stretch. So basically the same. And that's it. That's the only one I could find when he was as good as he was over those 30 games this year. Granted, he was probably getting to face more lefties and getting fewer plate appearances over this most recent 30 game span. But still, he's just been rejuvenated somehow. It's like looking at the old Albert Pujols again in his last month or two as a regular season major league player. It's unbelievable. So he's he's three off 700 now, right? Is that yeah. correct? He is at... That is correct. 697. <laughs> There's yeah. no stopping him. So by the time people hear this, but yeah, we are recording on Monday afternoon. He's got three more to go. So I ask you again, Ben, <laughs> you're Albert Pujols. 
final day of the regular season rolls around. You are a home run shy. Do you try to stick it out for for a little bit next year to to get a nice round number? Mm-hmm. Again, I I think I would try to stick it out more so because I've just like <laughs> been transported back to 15 years ago somehow more so than that I need the one more home run, but I guess so. I mean, he does have a bunch of postseason home runs. I know sure. we pretend that those don't count, <laughs> but well, he, he does have they, 19 of those. It's not that they don't count. <laughs> they counted very much at the time. It's just that when we, you know, when we cite his career stats, we're right. not gonna we're not gonna cite those, you know. Yeah. How in many his head maybe they count just as much. Yeah. But... I wonder how many hitters there are. I mean, there are pitching milestones too, so why do I have to restrict it to hitters other than that we're currently talking about? Albert Pools. Like I how many uh how many baseball players are there that have round numbers when you yeah. include their postseason stats? I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question. Like yeah. players who are short of 500 or right. 3,000 or 300 wins or something, if yeah. you just lump in the postseason stats. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it would probably be the obvious guys who were kind of close to it. Sure. So we sure. could figure it out. But yeah, there yeah. probably are a few. Anyway, I don't think I would come back for one more home run. And really, if he wants to go out just riding off in a blaze of glory, yeah. then I guess this is the way to go. Yeah. Especially. For sure depending how the postseason goes. But it's just unbelievable. Like, I think passing A-Rod is actually more significant than 700. I think you're right. And I don't mean that just out of, like, A-Rod spite or pettiness or anything. I just mean, like, getting above someone on the leaderboard seems to be be more of a milestone than just getting from 699 or 697 to 700, which is kind of just an arbitrary thing because our brains like (laughs) round numbers. But actually being fourth instead of fifth... That's pretty significant, I would say. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, it's been awesome. Like, really, I had no inkling that this could happen. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, it's some kind of, a, I think Joe Pesnansky said it, it's like the the rays of the sun to Superman are St. Louis to Albert Pujols. It's like he's having a better offensive season this year than he had in his entire time with the Angels, yeah. which got to make you feel just great as an Angels fan. But it's amazing. Like, he is hitting better than he did since he was on the Cardinals last time. I just did not see this happening. Like, he... He started the season hitting okay, and then he slumped. And, like, I remember before he went on this tear looking at his numbers, and at some point, like, he had slipped to below average again, I think. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that was kind of fun. That was nice. He he gave us some memories, and now he's sort of running out of steam. And then, phew, man, he's been the best hitter in baseball again. Just, like, it's especially great because it's been so long since he's been a great hitter. That's the thing. Like, he's had a unique career, really, in terms of just, like, how long he has stuck around and not been a very good player or a good player at all after being basically the best player in baseball over a long period. Like, he's just had an extraordinarily long tail to his career during which like a whole new generation of baseball fans has come of age and has gotten to know the older Albert Pujols, right. the post-St. Louis Albert Pujols. And so what made him so special was probably lost on that whole generation. Yep. And they just looked at the numbers and thought, this guy? <laughs> this guy did that? Really? Right. I have not seen that at all. So I feel like it's extra awesome 
that yes. he has treated us to just a little reprise here at the very end. I mean, it's been great for Cardinals fans and the Cardinals keep winning in large part because of Pujols, but man, just so much fun. And especially with Wainwright and Molina and the whole 40-something trio and those guys just riding off into the sunset potentially together. Some some great storylines in the postseason this year. Teams that have never won a World Series, teams that have a bunch of old guys going back for one last ride. I'm really kind of looking forward to the playoffs this year. But first, I'm hoping that Albert Pujols racks up a few more dingers. Yeah, I think that we have talked about this before, that one of the, the great tragedies of his tenure with the Angels was that there was this generation of fans who like were like, really? He was really good? Like you guys mm-hmm. used to get amped for pool holes? And it made, you know, it made it sad for us because it made us feel old, you know? Yeah. We had this like, it felt like a, a more meaningful gap in time even than it was because of how dramatic the, the fall had been, right? Yep. And so now I can, we can say to the youths, you know, mm-hmm. this is what we meant. Like, he, yeah, this he is was, it. This is what he did. And he did it for like so long. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then he didn't again for so long. But here's, here it is. Let's, you know, you're it's not, great. you're not young anymore either. Now you're old because <laughs> you know good pool holes. It's like a, yeah. it's like a marker, you know, it's like when you can rent a car without paying <laughs> extra for insurance or like oh, buy yeah. cocktails. I mean, you wouldn't know about that, but it no. is a thing that happens. Yes. So. <laughs> the other one was actually Mike Trout. You guessed it. So I was going to give you Mike Trout's updated stats because I had mentioned the other day that at that point he had hit about as well since coming off the IL as he had prior to going on it. And I said that was encouraging. Well, now he's hit a whole lot better since coming off the IL. He's hit homers in six straight games or at least six straight games he has played in. He got Sunday's day off, which is interesting. Like give a guy a day off when he's hitting a home run every day. That's a a bold move, but I guess they're being careful with his health. Anyway, he's up to a 209 WRC plus since his return. And he was at 168, I believe, before he went on the IL. So again, he's not like permanently out of the woods with this thing, but the fear that his career would just be over, that he would never be the same player again, he has certainly been the same player since he returned. So I just hope that he's able to maintain this, that he can stay healthy for the rest of this season, do whatever he needs to do over the offseason to take care of this lingering issue and go into next year healthy. But really, like when he's been on the field this year, he's been as good as ever. You know, (laughs) I mean, Mike Trout has declined in the sense that he's not as durable as he once was. But when he's in the lineup, he is still very much Mike Trout. There is basically no one better at baseball than Mike Trout when he is playing. It's just a matter of how often he's playing. Well, he did have that that long slump, Ben. We right. would be... Right before he went on the IL. Right. And, and I think he said or acknowledged that that issue was bothering him yeah. at that time. So he was somewhat hampered by it at that point. So we we saw that stretch, but yeah, it's it was it was really nice, you know, over the weekend. Jay Jaffe was like, I think it's time to write about Mike Trout and like in a good way. And I was like, Yeah, yeah it is. You're right, yep. Jay. Got a good sense for topic selection, that Jay Jaffe. Because you know mm-hmm. who's good at baseball right now? Mike Trout. Pretty cool. Yeah. And the last little streak I wanted to give you. So 
I mentioned last time that the White Sox had been playing well in the absence of Tony Rusa. Yeah. Right? They were seven and three to that point under interim manager Miguel Cairo. They took two out of three from Oakland over the weekend, so they're now nine and four. Now Larusa was present at the Sunday game in Oakland because the A's were honoring Dave Stewart and Larusa oh. was well enough to fly out there just well, as an observer. Yeah, reportedly he got a pacemaker. He says oh, that wow. he is fine and feeling good and just hasn't been completely cleared to return to managing, although he was cleared to travel. So he was on hand for his team's game on Sunday and he said Though Larusa has been cleared to travel, he's not sure if he'll be at every White Sox game while he recovers, insisting he doesn't want to be a distraction as the Sox continue their sure. playoff push. But there may be an element of good old-fashioned superstition involved as well. And remember I mentioned last time that, like, baseball superstition, if the White Sox keep winning without him, then it might right. actually be harder for him to come back, even if he is physically able to. Yeah. Because you just don't want to change anything. Well, he said on Sunday— if we lose today, I won't get on the team plane. You think I'm kidding? I'll get a car, and then I'm going to drive back slowly. Well, they did lose. <laughs> I, I did not hear whether he actually drove back. I hope not. <laughs> but that was uh, somewhat interesting. But what really propelled me to bring this up, Elvis Andrews is on the White Sox now. Yeah. Now, we talked about Elvis Andrews when he was still on the A's. Yes. And there was a bit of a controversy that came up because he had a vesting option. Right. And the A's pretty transparently just stopped starting him and then released him altogether, which really only could have been because they did not want that vesting option to vest. Yeah. It was a playing time, plate appearance-based option, and clearly they just did not want to give him more money because they are the Oakland A's, even though, as we noted, to that point, he had been, I think, the second most valuable Oakland Athletic on the season, or at least the second most valuable who was still on the team behind Sean Murphy. So I thought it was quite embarrassing for them to not play him and then to also release him. And he wasn't thrilled about it either. I don't know whether any grievance actually happened or whether it might still, but, you know, he had some comments at the time. He was clearly upset about yeah. not starting because his play justified a starting role, particularly right. on that team. Right. And it really was like one of the more transparently yeah. non-competitive moves that the, the A's have made. And they've made many. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say the, the list isn't short. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to narrow that down. But just deciding, yeah, we're not going to play one of our best players who is under contract and on our team because we just don't want this option to be triggered. That was really pretty bad, even by A standards, I think. And since the White Sox picked up Elvis Andrews, presumably for the league minimum when he was just out there for anyone to have, he has hit 293, 337, 511 in almost 100 plate appearances. He's been excellent. You know, we got an email from someone who wondered, like, well, why would he even just be available for the league minimum? Why wouldn't there be a bidding war for Elvis Andrus? And at the time I noted, you know, there aren't really any contenders who are projected to have worse shortstops than Elvis Andrus over the rest of the season other than the White Sox who were without Tim Anderson. Like, even though Andrus had had a bounce back season, his projections weren't great. 
there weren't any teams that had very obvious vacancies where their shortstop solutions were way worse than you would have projected Elvis Andrews to be. So it made some sense to me that sure. there wasn't a huge bidding war for him. There wasn't as far as I know, but he has a 141 WRC plus for the White Sox over that period. And on Saturday, he had a huge game winning hit for the White Sox against the A's, his former team, which just, you know, yep. I don't know if he felt like that was payback or karma <laughs> or anything, but personally, I did because I got yeah. invested in his whole plight here. So that was appropriate, I think, that that he kind of drove the nail in the coffin on the ace on that day. You know, it's just the funny thing about baseball is that good teams lose when they should win and bad teams win when they should lose. And there's all this, you know, variance game to game between Mm -hmm. what you might expect and what actually ends up happening. And that's just... That's just baseball, right? There's no like narrative thrust to that necessarily, except mm-hmm. when you yep. like cut a guy <laughs> so that you uh, don't have to pay his vesting option. And then it stops being random variance and starts to feel kind of like justice, you know? Yep. Yep. And furthermore, so since the day that the A's released Andrus, that was August 17th. So I went to the Fangrass Splits leaderboard. I looked at shortstop offensive production since August 17th by team. At the top of the list, you have Toronto with Bo Bichette, who has been on fire lately. So Toronto shortstops over that span have hit 374, 426, 687. That's a 216 WRC plus, and that is mostly Bichette. That's the hottest hitting shortstop team, the coldest hitting shortstop team since Elvis Andrus was released by the Oakland A's. Guess who? It's is the it Oakland the, A's. Is it the Oakland A's? <laughs> it sure is the Oakland A's. They have hit 179. 198, 214 over oh, that boy. span. That's a 17 WRC plus. 17. Seems bad. <laughs> that does seem bad. Yeah. Um, that is primarily the rookie, Nick Allen, who yeah. is, I suppose, the heir apparent at that position. And the only defensible case for playing Andrews less right. was we just want to see the kid. We yeah. want to give the kid more playing time. Well, that's what the kid has done with the playing time thus far. So 17 WRC plus while Elvis Andrews has posted a 141. So just saying things are coming home to roost. What what comes home to roost? Chickens? Did chickens. they come home to roost? Yeah. Yeah, so chickens. That's what has come home to roost for the Oakland A's lately. Yeah, chickens do come home to roost. I, I I would imagine that most birds probably come home to roost. I haven't made a study of it. I don't know a lot about birds, but I I would imagine that you could pick you could pick the fowl of your mm-hmm. choice and probably have a home roosting habits. But yeah, whatever bird you're picking, I think that it has taken up residence along with the feral cats. And <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there a possum now too? Aren't there possums? Yep. Mm-hmm. Or at least one possum. There's a press yep. box possum. Probably not anymore. I, b- I bet they kind of took yeah. care of that. They Hopefully. may have addressed that. Hopefully. Or maybe they just released them. Maybe the possum had a vesting <laughs> option too. <laughs> to follow up on another thing that we discussed recently, mm-hmm. didn't we say or, or you say that someone should inspect James Karinczak's hair? I sure did. And you know yeah. what? Somebody did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Twins manager Rocco Baldelli was evidently listening to the podcast or reaching the same conclusion independently. I mean, look, I like (laughs) to be right about things. Mm -hmm. That is one of my better known attributes. But I don't think that it takes like 
special pointing out or clairvoyance to the pod to know like <laughs> that guy's touching his hair every time he goes to pitch. So like maybe yeah. someone should root around in there, see what's you know, does he have like a family of field mice that he's concerned about, or is he trying to reach for some goop? <laughs> so on Friday night, umpire Ted Barrett, at the prompting of Twins manager Rocco Baldelli, went out there and he really ran oh, he his got hands in there. through the locks, oh, the luscious yeah. locks of Cleveland reliever James Karinchak. To his credit, I mean, you know, it was it was pretty sensual. It yeah. was, <laughs> it was, it was inti- not just a cursory inspection. It was intimate. I mean, yeah, it looked yeah. like he was inspecting for lice, possibly, or yeah. <laughs> maybe it was more of like a, a styling thing, like he had just gotten his hair cut and it's, you know, your your barber, your stylist runs their hand through your oh, hair. To just make to make sure it's just, like everything's yeah. laying flat or right. whatever. Just to spruce it up before they Spru- give you the spruce. little mirror in the back to, to confirm that it's okay or yeah. ask you if you'd like some product or whatever it is. But it was pretty thorough, I would say, and ultimately... I suppose Karinchak passed the inspection because there was no sticky stuff detected. Right. Now, he was very much going to his hair after almost every pitch, it seemed like. And Ben Clemens wrote about this for Fangraphs. I mean, highly suspicious, we might say. Not just based on the constant hair touching, but also the spin and the spin to velocity ratio, which really cratered for Karinchak last year when the spin sticky stuff ban went into effect and his effectiveness cratered too. And then he was demoted to the minors. We talked about it at the time. Well, he's been back and his spin to velocity ratio is almost back to where it was last year. We talked about how that's really happened league wide, how spin and perhaps sticky stuff seem to be back. And with Karachak specifically, his numbers are more or less back where they were. He's maybe not quite peak Karachak, but he has been highly effective and has also been really spinning it. And also been going to his hair an awful lot. So Baldelli finally decided enough is enough. I'm going to call for an inspection. And either he is innocent or he's hiding the goop so well in the hair that even this inspection could not turn it off. Like, what's your confidence level that you would be able to detect sticky stuff (sighs) in James Karinchak's hair if there were sticky (laughs) stuff there? There's a lot of hair there. Yeah. And he's sweaty, like naturally sweaty. So can you distinguish between... (laughs) He's naturally sweaty. (laughs) Yeah. So can you distinguish between natural and unnatural sweat or stick uh, in hair? I I don't know either. Yeah, I'm not sure. And I'm curious, like, what guidance the umps are given around this. Like, are they, you know, do they come into a room? Is it like when... um, when it's you know it's Halloween and you you <laughs> stick your fingers in something you can't see and they're like it's eyeballs and it's just peeled grapes but you don't you don't know that necessarily it could be eyeballs what do you yeah. know about eyeballs so do they like get an opportunity to touch different gooey substances yeah I wonder <laughs> and like be like well this is you know this is spider tech and this is pine tar and this is this mixed with that at this percentage of right. that versus this you know I. I don't know. I don't know how much confidence I would have. I mean, it does seem as if you would maybe want there to be some amount of regular testing of these things just because 
Mm-hmm. You know, like what if you have, what if you are naturally sweaty? You know, some yeah. people sweat more than other people. Now, sweat on its own, I know when sweat is is mixed with rosin, then you can get tacky, but like just yeah. sweat. And he's doing that too. It seems like he's going oh, yeah. to the rosin bag after every hair touch too. So, Oh, it sure, it sure does. It sure yeah. does seem like that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Which is legal. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, you are allowed to do that. I think that that is important to know. But I do wonder because like you wouldn't want just sweat because famously if you have if it's just sweat it can make things hard to grip. So right. you wouldn't want just that. I don't know as a person who has like styled her hair and put various, you know, styling products in it. I think I could probably differentiate between like just sweat and something else. So I know that when guys were loading up the ball, really loading up the ball with spider tack, like it wasn't just spider tack. Because if you put spider tack in your hair and then tried to get it out of there, <laughs> I think you would end up with kind of a bald spot, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like is anyone, I guess the question is, in addition to the scalp massage, we need a lifting of the hair to find the bald spot <laughs> that would give away that Karen Shack is in indeed loading up the ball with some substance. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. I don't want to further impugn him, but it is, it does seem, even given the other aspects of his repertoire, which make him hard to hit. And as Ben noted, like, it's not as if he was purely a creation of sticky stuff, right? Like, he has a really intense delivery that's hard to time, and his stuff moves a lot still. And, you know, like, it's, like, I get, I get that there's other stuff going on, but it does seem strange that he would be able to sort of have this uptick in spin almost back to pre-enforcement levels without some kind of assistance. It's not impossible. I don't want to like be more certain than I am, but you know, of all the the explanations, it doesn't strike me as like the most likely. <laughs> yeah, as I recall, when they implemented the inspections and the ban last year, just midstream, yeah. I think. One of the rationales for not distinguishing between substances and saying, well, this type of sticky stuff is banned and that type is not, is that they did not want to impose that burden on umpires, that they did not want to force umpires who had not really trained for this to distinguish between sticky substances. They did not want to place the burden on them of having to distinguish in real time between, oh, this is one of the worst sticky substances and this is one of the not so bad, not so sticky substances. So they just said they're all banned except for rosin and some sweat. And you can't even do rosin and sweat, right? Wasn't there right. was that part of it? Like you weren't even supposed to mix those two things, which was weird because like how do you even avoid mixing those things? Right. Anyway, I think it would be a lot to ask of an umpire to distinguish between sweat and something yes. else sticky yes. that is more than sweat or to distinguish between types of sticky substance. So right. I think Rocco Baldelli was justified in calling for an inspection here, and maybe he was frustrated that no sticky substance was detected, but it's not conclusive, I guess, that it wasn't actually there. Or, you know, he could have been hiding it somewhere else, I suppose, yeah. and maybe the hair touch was just a misdirect. <laughs> but Oh, yeah. yeah. Ooh, I like that as a theory. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, like there might be innocent explanations here, but the the combination of just how often he is going there with the uptick and spin makes you think that like it's something that if I were an opposing manager, I would keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. I know that Terry Francona like took exception to the timing 
the timing of the inspection. He mm-hmm. was careful to say not the inspection itself, but like when, because it was in the middle of an at bat. But mm-hmm. I don't know, like if you think a guy's going back there and really gooping it up, like you gotta, it's a close race that they're in, you know, in yep. that AL Central. You gotta press your advantages. But yeah, people should check out Ben's piece. And I know that Ben linked to a piece that we had previously discussed on this pod by Rob Arthur about the mm-hmm. uptick in spin. So check that out too. But I don't know, James. It looks like something fishy is going on. Mm-hmm. Do you have a bald spot? Who could say? <laughs> yeah. Well, if he does, it's well hidden because there's an awful lot of hair. Up there. There's so much hair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel in some ways like I can relate to, you know, sometimes you, when you have all that hair, because like I have a lot of hair. And sometimes <laughs> you're like, I have to get this hair off my neck. It's so hot. You know, mm-hmm. every time I step outside here in Arizona, I'm like, oh, my neck. But, you know, I'm not loading up a baseball with goop, so that's maybe where the comparison stops. <laughs> right. I was going to say speaking of close races, but actually this is not a close race at all. However, it is a close thing deciding whether a team has clinched or not. And it's Ooh. more complicated than ever, really, with extra rounds of postseason and 12 teams. And so the Dodgers were said to have clinched a playoff spot, and they sort of celebrated clinching a playoff spot, a wild card spot specifically, although they're quite close to clinching an NL West title as well. Yeah. But they beat the Padres 11 to 2 on Sunday. And so MLB said that they had clinched, that they were the first team to secure a postseason berth. But it turns out they hadn't actually clinched. So MLB admitted that it had miscalculated. There was an internal error in determining the Dodgers' postseason clinching scenarios. I'm reading from ESPN here, meaning Los Angeles still has a magic number of one to secure a playoff spot as of Monday morning and as we speak on Monday afternoon. So MLB failed to account for a potential scenario in which the Padres, who were 77 and 64, overtake the Dodgers for the NL West title, and Los Angeles finishes in a three-way tie at 96 and 66 with the Milwaukee (laughs) Brewers and St. Louis Cardinals, Milwaukee would win the NL Central in that scenario, while St. Louis would win the wildcard tiebreaker with Los Angeles based on head-to-head results this season. So they had to retract the clinch. They had to say that in this extremely unlikely scenario, it was actually still possible for the Dodgers to miss the playoffs. And so now they are going for the clinch again on Monday against the Diamondbacks, and they could also clinch the division as early as Tuesday. So when MLB said that they had clinched, they were using the Dodgers' 4-3 and record against the Brewers as a head-to-head tiebreaker, but they were not factoring in the possibility of a three-way tie. Mm. So in order for this scenario to happen, the Dodgers would have to lose their last 23 straight games, (laughs) while the Brewers would need to win their last 21 straight games in order for both clubs to finish with the same record. So I don't think that's going to happen, but they did jump the gun on celebrating the clinch. And there was a post-game toast that manager Dave Roberts led with sparkling wine. So I guess it was a a somewhat restrained clinch, which is appropriate, I think, if you're the Dodgers. Act like you've been there before because they are there every year. (laughs) Yeah, because you've been there quite a bit. 
Yeah, and it's not even the division title clinch. It's just a wild card clinch. So they had a, a nice little refined sip and see sort of situation here with the sparkling wine. They got caps with the postseason logo. So what do you do if you have a false start on the clinching and then you technically officially clinch the following day or in a future game? Do you do the wine and the toast and the postseason caps again? Do you take back the postseason caps and say, sorry, too soon, you didn't quite clinch yet? (laughs) What do you do in this situation? Oh, I imagine if you're a baseball player, you definitely take the caps back. You chill (laughs) some news. Did they make a point of saying sparkling wine? Instead yeah, of this champagne. story, this ESPN story says uh-huh. sparkling wine. So mm-hmm. they didn't have champagne on hand, and so they had to default to sparkling wine. Because you know, know, if it's you know? not from the champagne region, I'm fine. It's not champagne, <laughs> right? But given how superstitious ball players tend to be, even ones who play for organizations with as strong uh, an analytical bent as the the Dodgers have, I think you take the hats back. You put new sparkling wine and or champagne on ice uh, and maybe some Martinelli's for those who don't want to imbibe. (laughs) And then you wait and then you do it again because you don't want to, I think especially as if you're a team like the Dodgers where you, you very frequently are in the playoffs deep into the playoffs often, you don't want to like mess around and, and you know, fly too close to the sun on wax wings. You got to take this stuff seriously every single time, lest you invite, you know, some angry baseball god to try to use you as a parable. Right. You don't want to be a parable. You want to be a World Series champion. So yeah, I think you you just do the whole thing again. Plus, like, you know, I'm, I tend to be of the mind that if you have an excuse to drink sparkling wine, like, why not do it again? That's not sure. unpleasant. It's not like you're, you know, getting whipped creamed in the face or something. You're just mm-hmm. getting... Did they, they didn't do like the shake up the bottle and spray each other stuff with it or anything like that? Doesn't sound like okay, it. I'm that, not positive. That would be the only circumstance where I might say, let's alter our, our typical trajectory because like you should really only make your clubhouse folks clean that up the one time, you know, like <laughs> right. that, that's just disrespectful of other people's, you know, frequent contact with sticky stuff speaking of, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. once you get champagne on the floor, it's sticky for at least a week. So yeah, I would do, I would do the whole thing again. I understand the circumstances that led up to this miscalculation on the part of MLB now that you have described them, but it doesn't seem great <laughs> that, the, that the system is so complicated that the league itself can goof that stuff up. Right, you know, right. like, I don't think that this actually changes our perception of the expanded format. We all have our takes and perceptions of it, but like, you know, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that doesn't matter but that you are going to remind them of in your group chat uh, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and I would wager that MLB was actually alerted to its mistake by a post on the R Baseball subreddit because there was a much upvoted post early Monday morning Eastern time by Reddit user Medical420 (laughs) who posted (laughs) that the Dodgers had not actually clinched for the very reason that they had not actually clinched. MLB, as far as I know, did not cite this Reddit user. I think they should because I guess it's possible that they had independently discovered their error, but seems likely to me that they probably saw it because of this popular post on the baseball subreddit. And if so, I think they should have said, 
<laughs> Reddit user Medical420 had yeah. it first. Really? I mean, it's only right that you issue I, the yes, correction there. Cite and, your sources. And, yeah. So kudos to, to Medical420 <laughs> for <laughs> keeping MLB on its toes. But yes, the MLB has to be fact-checked by the baseball subreddit. Maybe not the best, but amusing. Yeah. I mean, congrats to you, Medical420, both on your discovery and for getting to use the shorter line at the dispensary. (laughs) I also think that if you're the Dodgers, like just in general, there might be too many clinching celebrations that happen now. Like I think there's been a bit of clinch creep. Clinch creep. That's hard to say. (laughs) Yeah. There are just so many opportunities to clinch something or celebrate something now which there are going to be even more because there's an extra round of playoffs. Although I guess if you're the Dodgers, you don't celebrate having a bye necessarily in the first round. But, you know, like do the Dodgers celebrate when they clinch the playoff spot and then when they clinch the division a day or two later? Are those separate clinching celebrations? And do you do a spraying some sort of beverage every time you advance? Like, I don't know. I I feel like... With the Dodgers specifically, I doubt that they were able to muster much excitement for the clinching a wildcard spot because, first of all, they win the division basically every year. I guess they did not actually win the division last year, but they win or make the playoffs every year. And so it's no big deal to the Dodgers to clinch a wild card spot or, frankly, even to win a division at this point. I mean, it's still a great accomplishment and they should not just take it for granted. It's special. You should celebrate that even if you've done it a billion times in a row. But they have done it a billion times in a row. So at least the Dodgers who've been around that team for a while, I doubt they're getting super amped about, okay, we cannot miss the playoffs now, especially because they've had such a huge lead in the division for so long. Like There was never any suspense if it came down to the last week of the season or something. Sure. And if you falsely believed that you had clinched a day early and it was like really coming down to the wire and it was like the last weekend of the season or something, I'd be all for celebrating twice because you did it and it was close and maybe it was even closer than you thought. But when it's been predestined basically for months at this point, I mean, you know, almost since opening day, you could say that the Dodgers were going to make the playoffs. But clearly for quite a while, the question has been more, are they going to win more games than any team has ever won? That's been the question more so than are they going to sneak into the playoffs? So. I don't know like what the the heart rates were in the Dodgers clubhouse when sure. they're celebrating this probably not that elevated I would imagine. So I don't know. I feel like we need to do something to distinguish these occasions. And maybe the sparkling wine was one way to do that. Like I've heard Joe Pisnitsky and Mike Sure talk on the podcast about maybe there should be a different beverage that you celebrate with for each round or each time you clinch a different thing or advance in the playoffs, you should ramp up to champagne. So champagne should be the ultimate <laughs> celebration. Like you when have to you like the World start Series. with Bud Light and then you get to work your way up yeah, to champagne. I, it seems I like said, a like, start sponsorship. With water. Oh, oh <laughs> come just on work now. Your way up. Yeah, no, you could start higher than that, I guess. You could start with something carbonated. It could be sparkling water, perhaps, at least, let's say. Perhaps you could start with the official cerveza of Major League exactly. Baseball. Yeah. Yeah, you could do the official beer, the official cerveza. Yeah, you could work your way through the official beverages. But 
that'd be kind of cool if there was a, a different beverage for each time that you could clinch. I'm just saying, like, let's say the Dodgers win the World Series this year. You got potential celebrations after you clinch a wild card berth, after you clinch the division, after you win the first round, after right. you win the pennant, after you win the World Series. Like, we're talking a handful of clinching celebrations here. So I guess it makes sense that they did not start with the champagne. You got to build up to that, right? And I don't even know if they did the spraying. You should probably build up to the spraying as well. Huh. I think that I'm I'm trying to see if I'm going to articulate this um, as precisely as I mean to. I think that if you're a team like the Dodgers, like your postseason celebration should be when you clinch the highest possible thing you can have heading into the postseason, right? So like if you're the Dodgers and you're firmly in command of your division lead, you should wait until you win the division to have like a postseason celebration. If you're the Mariners, once you've secured a playoff spot, you should have a crazy party. Yes, you riot. You turn over cars. No, sure. do do that. But. <laughs> yeah, I think having a sense of like, what is the highest thing we can achieve heading into October? Let's clinch when that has happened. And then like if you get passed up, you know, if something wild were to happen and the Dodgers were to lose the NL West, then like you don't feel silly for having already celebrated because you're like, oh, I'm in more of a dogfight than I appreciated, right? So I think you should wait. I think you're right that there might be postseason creep, although there are only so many teams where this is really a problem because there aren't a ton of teams like the Dodgers where they're like, postseason presence is considered to be something automatic at this point. Yeah. So I don't know that we really have to worry about it with like, I don't know, last year, if I had been the Giants, for instance, I probably would have celebrated prematurely because I wouldn't have thought, oh, I, I'm going <laughs> to win. Although they that division kind of, it it came down to the, the bitter end for them, didn't it? Mm -hmm. So, yep. you know, maybe they didn't celebrate all that prematurely, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Look, maybe you could say that you should seize any opportunity you sure. have to celebrate something. Sure. Life isn't fair. Sad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> if things are going well for you, then celebrate it. What's the worst thing that could happen? You celebrate too much. You're, right. you're too happy. And you with too whatever, many occasions. <laughs> whatever beverage you want, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want some sparkling wine, if you want champagne, if you're into a like a non-alcoholic like shrub, this and that. I still don't mm -hmm. know about that. I don't know if I understand what a shrub is, but mm -hmm. I'm given to understand that they are delicious. So I think that, you know, there should be a, a wide variety of options and you should you should celebrate with whatever strikes you as celebratory. Yeah. You know, like for instance, if Baltimore manages to to sneak into a wild card. I think they should celebrate the instant oh, yeah. that happens, right? Sure. Houston, you should wait until you've clinched the division because you're gonna, right? right. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not a given, but it's pretty close to being a given at this point. Yeah. It's like the, the dress for the job you want, not the job you have. I don't yeah. know if that's actually good advice, but like celebrate for the postseason birth you want, right? Not the one you have if those things are different. So I guess- Everyone wants to win the division title, but some teams, they set their sights on a wild card berth because that's really the only uh, option available to them. So if you're the Dodgers, 
you don't really like what are you celebrating like yes we could lose every game for the rest of the season and we would still squeak into a wild card spot that's not what they want to happen they want to win the division and they expect to win the division so on the one hand yeah okay making the playoffs by any means it's an accomplishment even in a 12 team playoff format but that's not the way that you want to get in so maybe just wait until you have sealed the way that you want to get in yeah all right speaking of the dodgers by the way i went to mention they have done this despite the fact that cody bellinger is still broken basically like less broken than last year both physically and performance wise but he has a 79 wrc plus on the season now that is a a big improvement over the 47 from last year Yeah. (laughs) Different kind of bad, but bad. (laughs) Right. He is, as far as anyone knows, healthy is the Uh difference. Whereas last year you could kind of write it off. Like 2020, he wasn't great, but he was still an above average hitter. And whatever, it's 2020. It's a short season. He had a 245 BABIP. You don't think that's real coming off the 2019 MVP year. Then last year, he has a whole succession of injuries and there was just never any point where you could feel confident that he was completely physically healthy in 100 percent. And then he looked pretty good in the postseason and you thought, okay, maybe he'll be back. He'll be the good Bellinger again. And no, he has not. He looked like that early on in the season, but it just hasn't kept up and he's hit 200, 261, 380. Man, Bellinger's Babips since the start of 2020. Yeah. 245, 196, 242 for a guy with some speed. That is wild because he was a 300 Babip guy his first few years in the majors. And boy, he's got like Pujols-esque, like some of the worst Babips ever if he had kept this up. I mean, over the past few years, which – I don't know if that is a, a product of not hitting the ball quite as hard or just pulling the ball more predictably or or what. I haven't looked into the splits. Uh, I guess it's partly that he hits a ton of pop-ups, which are basically automatic outs. So that'll get you a low BABIP. I, I guess that's part of it. Although, I don't know. It's just it's not great. Like He is still a very good defensive player in center. So he's still playable pretty much. But like if it were anyone else... You would think change of scenery candidate maybe, except that this is the Dodgers. And so like the Dodgers are the team that you would identify as the change of scenery for a struggling hitter, right? (laughs) One to fix someone. Yeah. Yeah. So if the Dodgers can't fix him, I mean- It seems bad. It seems bad. I guess it's possible that despite being great at hitter development, seemingly, they might have some sort of weakness when it comes to Cody Bellinger or like maybe he's not receptive to- input from them because they're his original team and he was an MVP for them and everything. So I guess he could still be a change of scenery candidate. But really, if he can't be fixed with the Dodgers, that does not bode well. And it's one of the most shocking career arcs for someone who started as well as he did to be down in the dumps the way that he is. And, you know, they've had guys like Muncie and and Turner and and players who had slow starts and you wondered whether they had anything left and they have turned it on. And Bellinger just has not. He's just kind of an out now. 
Yeah, like you might have been on paternity leave last year when I asked this question. So if it doesn't sound familiar to you, that's why. You were in the haze of having a new baby. Mm -hmm. But I remember at one point last year, I was like, is Cody Villinger a non-tender candidate? And I felt like I was being shocking and controversial. And now I'm like, I think Cody Villinger is just a non-tender candidate. (laughs) Because he's still going to make significant money in, in ARB. So I do find it funny, though, that you said it's amazing they're doing this despite Cody Bellinger being bad. And like, yeah, but also, Ben, here's some facts about the Dodgers for you. So this is with a minimum of 400 plate appearances. Freddie Freeman has a 158 WRC+. Mookie Betts has a 152. Trey Turner, 134. Will Smith, 129. Gavin Lux, 126. Justin Turner, 124. He really turned it on after a very slow start. Mm -hmm. And Max Muncy's at a 104. But I still think Max Muncy's a little bit hurt. So, and he's been much better of late so mm-hmm. yes but also oh my god the dodgers yeah <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're just really <laughs> stacked fun. they're just yeah. really really very stacked yeah you just have to wonder like is he still hurt in some way or, or did yeah. one of those injuries like hamper his mechanics in in some way that has not know, been man. easy to correct it's just Man, it's not how I expected things to go. <laughs> it's concerning. And I think that the part of it that has made me the most sort of nervous on his behalf, because he's officially like moved into that segment of the player population where I'm like, buddy, like, mm-hmm. I want yeah. better things for you than this. And I don't know, man, is that like even in seasons where he has had like a terrific performance and his like top line numbers are great. Like he has had stretches where you're like, huh, breaking ball recognition is just not there for you. And so Mm -hmm. the fact that he has had that even at times when he has gone good and look, there are plenty of guys who have like a bad stretch for a while and then they're great again. It doesn't matter. But it's like, maybe this was just always in you. And then something happened with the injury and you couldn't adjust back. Like sometimes guys just can't, do that and it's really a shame because he Mm -hmm. was literally the mvp yep remember when cody villinger was the mvp i do it wasn't that long ago. it wasn't that (laughs) long ago i would just like to point out for all of the dodger fans listening to this who are somehow fixated on the fact that i have cited max muncie's season long wrc plus (laughs) i would like to note that he had a 149 in august and a 198 so far in september so it's going good for Max mm-hmm. Muncy right now. And yeah. that's exciting, but it has not rubbed off on Cody Bellinger, which is sad for him. Yeah. Friend of the show, Eric Steven of True Blue LA, he tweeted on Sunday, beginning June 30th, the day Padres starter Joe Musgrove said of Justin Turner, when he's in the box, I don't feel like he's a huge threat. Turner is hitting 371, 440, 616 with eight homers and 12 doubles in 43 games. The only higher OPS in MLB during that time is by Aaron Judge. <laughs> so I like the idea that it's just driven by spite, by petty desire to prove Joe Musgrove wrong that Justin Turner has sure. turned it on. I know that's not what Eric is saying. No. It is uh, just a fun little coincidence. But yeah, like he looked old and slow and maybe like he was losing it at the start of the season and he has bounced back to being one of the best hitters in baseball not that the Dodgers needed the help right wait did I say Justin Turner when I meant to no you did not you said Muncy yeah I was like oh no now I'm really gonna get emails no no I understand (laughs) yep in addition Justin Turner gotcha exactly yeah I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down 
As I was looking at Bellinger's 2019, it was making me think about Edwin Diaz's 2019 Mm. because that was in its own way as confounding as Bellinger's recent trajectory has been. And I remember potting about this then because that was such a mystifying season. So look, Edwin Diaz is back to being unhittable, right? And he has the entrance song and the whole thing. And he has a 1.5 ERA and his FIP is even lower than that. He has a, a 112 FIP on the year. So basically Bob Gibson's 1968 ERA is, is what the deserved performance of Edwin Diaz is essentially this season. So he's been unbelievable and lights out and probably even better than he was in his best season in Seattle at this point. He's yeah. been amazing. So. That's kind of cool, but it makes me even more confused about what happened in 2019 because the weird thing about 2019 was that he was still striking out tons of guys. In fact, he was striking out more hitters at least per nine innings than he had the year before when he'd been totally dominant, I guess not on a percentage basis, but he was still striking out almost 40% of the hitters he faced and had a 30% or or higher K minus BP rate like he still peripherally was really good at least strikeout and walk wise except for the fact that he gave up 2.3 home runs per nine innings like yeah. he was just an absolute gopher factory and it was so weird like he had a 377 BABIP that year he had like a 27% home run per fly ball rate, which is like double his career rate, essentially. It was so weird. He was still throwing hard. He was still missing tons of bats. And yet somehow he kept serving up all these home run pitches yeah. too. And so he had a 5.59 ERA that yeah. year. And he was blowing tons of saves. And I just, I could not make sense of that season at the time. And now that that season is sandwiched between two sub-two ERA seasons with this further sub-two ERA season this year, it's like, what was going on that year? Yeah. Like, was he actually worse or was that just like the worst run of luck of all time? Like, what was happening? I mean, his peripherals were worse that year because of the homers, but if you look at like his XFIP or his expected ERA, those were still pretty good, not quite as good as they have been in other years, but not bad. So I look back at that year when he's like a replacement level pitcher who is still striking out tons of hitters and yet just serving up dingers with great regularity. And I do not know what to make of that season. I, I guess it's possible that his command was just a little off at certain times, and, and that's what did it. But it didn't make sense to me then, and it makes even less sense to me in retrospect seeing what he's done since. Yeah, it's just it's a good reminder that your reaction to who has won a trade can fluctuate wildly <laughs> oh, season yeah. to season. Because I remember at the time being like, oh, no, the Mets sure messed that up. And now I'm like, eh, I don't know if they did, though. I think yeah. it ended up being fine because really what it cost them was money and a prospect who didn't end up being that good Mm -hmm. (laughs) all right let's do maybe an email or two i i had actually one follow-up or or perhaps two follow-ups to things that we talked about last week so 
the saga of the twins consulting Carlos Correa for his mm. input on trade deadline moves. So we got an email from Jscape2000, listener, Patreon supporter, who says, listening to you talk about Correa isn't they asked me fodder for staying. Yeah. No hometown discount, but makes sense to me in a LeBron James influence way, which sure. is true, right? If they wanted to try to persuade him to stick around, maybe they could be buttering him up by yeah. saying, we want your input, right? Making him feel like part of the team, like he has some voice on the future direction of the team. And maybe that would make him more likely to stay. Yeah. Or at least that could be the thinking. So yeah, that's I true. find that convincing. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that it'll be more convincing than you know a truck full of money but (laughs) it might be among the things that are convincing so Mm -hmm. yeah yep good point and another follow-up from milner in indianapolis who said i think we may have missed something important by scoffing at the increased base size and its Mm. effect on base stealing specifically he notes while the increased base size will almost imperceptibly shorten the distance between bases, I do think it will help base runners by providing a larger target for the runner to touch. As base runners have become increasingly good at getting two bases while avoiding tags, giving them an extra three inches per side or 99 square inches total makes it more difficult for defenders to tag them out. It's like increasing the size of a goal in hockey. The defender now has to cover more ground. It might not make a huge difference, but I can imagine sliding wizards like Javier Baez, who's also a tagging wizard, will appreciate more space to maneuver toward the base. And he notes in Baez's case, he will have to work a little harder to tag runners out when he's on defense. So that's a good point, right? And I think – I forget whether I read this, but I I think maybe the – surface of the base is shaped a little differently too to maybe make it more likely that you will safely touch the base instead of skidding off it in a way that could injure you. But maybe it's a little grippier too where you're less likely to slide off after having made contact with the base. But that's a good point that it's not just that they have shortened the base pass very slightly, but also they are presenting a, a bigger target for base runners and more ways to touch the base and evade a tag. Yeah, I I find that persuasive as a potential benefit. I still think that it would be useful for us to clarify a zone of of sort of safety over the bag to to prevent us from having to spend more time on like irritating replay reviews of a guy coming off temporarily, but mm-hmm. absent that like something toward being, I don't know, Spider-Man gripped to the <laughs> seems like that's like it seems like a good idea. Yeah. Then again, we got another email from listener David in Riverhead, New York, who said 18-inch bases mean the batter runner will have one and a half inches less to run, but the first baseman will be three inches closer to the other infielders. So will 18-inch bases increase the rate of outs at first? Maybe infinitesimally. It will probably be pretty tough to tell. Yeah. All right. And, you know, when we talked about the shift last week and I expressed my misgivings about it, I think it is important to note that in addition to all the other things we expressed there and just the uncertainty of of whether it would make a huge difference to actually bend the shift in terms of the effects that we might see given just the track record in the minors and sort of the uncertain evidence about how effective the infield shift specifically has been. Rob Arthur had an article at Baseball Prospectus on Monday where he essentially argued that this wouldn't make much of a difference because even 
even though maybe it prevents four-player outfields, there's still a lot of shifting and shading you can do in theory within the strictures of these new rules. So like, yeah, you, you have to have at least four infielders and you have to have two on either side. Mike Petriello of MLB.com had a thread about this the other day, and and Mike's no big fan of this rule either, but he noted that there is still a little leeway. Like, you can still do certain things. You can still move an outfielder in dramatically, like, not all the way in necessarily, but you you can. You could still have a a five-player infield. Essentially, you just have to have a minimum of four infielders, at least two on either side, so you could bring in another outfielder if you wanted to, you could still kind of load up on one side. Sure. So it's really like you can't have a four-player outfield because you must have at least four infielders and you can't leave half of the infield to one player or no players because you have to have two on a side. But within those boundaries, you can still do some stuff. You can still play around a little. And Rob argued that maybe just the fact that Fielders have played deeper and and outfielders specifically have played deeper lately and that they've shaded maybe more or better from pitch to pitch and player to player that that has accounted for more of the BABIP decrease than just the infield overshift, the extreme overshift that will be banned by this rule. So I'm just saying there are still some ways to play with the space here. You're restricted in, in certain ways, but there will still be a little bit of variation from team to team. So that's it's kind of interesting. And, you know, he noted that it also changes the calculus for defense. Right now, people say if you go opposite field, they'll stop shifting, which isn't necessarily true. If you can turn Bryce Harper into a singles hitter, you do it 100% of the time. But if now it's an opening for an extra base hit, not a single, that changes a lot. Maybe you don't shift. So there's more risk reward. One person on Twitter who Mike quote tweeted said that they basically introduced true risk and reward into the shift instead of banning it, which is one way to look at it. Yeah. I'm still against it, to be clear, but it won't be totally uniform defense. They haven't completely taken the art or the science out of positioning. Yeah. I mean, I think that like anything else that is meant to sort of (laughs) shift the game in a particular direction when it comes to the offensive environment, it is probably useful for us to think of this as like, I don't know, fencing terms. Do you start with the parry and then they do a a post? You went to a private school. Aren't you supposed to know this stuff? Yeah. We didn't have fencing though. You didn't have fencing? Isn't that one of the only sports you have room for in Manhattan is fencing? (laughs) You know, like imagine I know fencing terms. It's like you do the one fencing thing and then your opponent does the other fencing thing. And so I think it's probably useful for us to think about shifting the same way, although more clearly stated in with the actual terms, because surely even given the league's best efforts to counteract shifting and its effect on offense, like teams are going to look at what the rules are, and then they are going to figure out how they can within those confines still try to press an advantage. And so I think that that like directionally, some of this stuff is is pointed the right way. I'm maybe a touch more optimistic about some of it than like Rob is, but I think it would be naive to assume that we're not going to end up with some like unintended consequences. We're going to be watching a game and go, oh, okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, <laughs> right. now they can do that. So that's the mm-hmm. thing they're going to do. You know? Yes. 
I think the critique that they're still not necessarily addressing the idea that you want to somehow corral the pitchers more so than address what happens after the the ball is put in play. I know that they're hoping that there will be kind of a a bank shot effect here where they just incentivize hitters to hit differently. But again, they're sort of presuming that a lot of this has to do with the hitter's approach more so than just the pitchers forcing that approach. And, And there's maybe a little bit of truth to that, but I don't know how much truth to that. Anyway, we got a couple emails just about things that they could have done instead, I guess, to address some of these supposed ills that these new rules changes will address. For instance, Brian said, in the past, I have been a supporter of moving the mound back to decrease strikeouts. I would still like to see that explored further, but I feel like I may be in the minority. I was thinking the other day about making the baseball slightly bigger. My thought was that the bigger baseball would be heavier and also have more surface area to create drag. These could both decrease pitcher velocity and decrease the travel distance of the ball off the bat. A bigger baseball would also be easier to make contact with, even if just to foul it off. I have no idea if this has ever been discussed before as a possible solution. I also don't know what intended consequences this change would have. Would more surface area and more stitches cause more movement on breaking pitches? Would there be increased injury risk? Have you heard of this discussed or studied in the past? Am I not thinking of something obvious that would make this not work? I think I've heard this floated just because everything has been floated at some point. Sure. I think he is essentially right that a bigger baseball would create more drag because it would have more surface area and it would not carry as well. I wouldn't be able to say what the effect that the stitches might have and the movement and all of that. And I guess that is maybe one reason why you wouldn't do this first is just that tampering with the ball you know, it's it's pretty serious business, like as we have learned of late when MLB has either changed the ball intentionally or had it changed unintentionally. Just tiny changes in the ball really can change things about baseball that maybe you hadn't even anticipated. Now, to their credit, I suppose, they did set out to deaden the ball somewhat. You could argue whether that was a good idea (laughs) to do that at this point, but they did intend to do that, and that has happened. I would argue that the effects have not been great in that we've had just less offense and the other offensive problems haven't necessarily fixed themselves. We just have the ball carrying less, but they did set out to make the ball better, and they did achieve that goal which maybe gives you a bit of confidence that they could actually achieve whatever effect that they intended if they were to make the ball bigger. But it is playing with fire a little bit. Like when you mess with the ball, when you mess with the strike zone, it is a great way to achieve some results because a small change to those things really can change big things about baseball and about the baseball, but right. it's it's dangerous, you know? And so you might say, well, it makes sense. Just go straight to the baseball and why mess around around the margins here? We could just fix the baseball itself and, and govern the way that we want the game to be played that way. No muss, no fuss, but it is a little scary, I think, to, to tamper with the thing that this sport is named after, the, the most central piece yeah. of equipment. So if there's sort of a, a more elegant way to achieve that goal without messing with the baseball and possibly courting some sort of disaster, you know, I, I don't know how big a deal is. Like, pitchers can be pretty finicky about the ball and yes. how it feels, and understandably so. So if you were to actually change the size of the thing, in a noticeable way, pitchers would probably have some notes about that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> can you imagine how many, even if they're all the same size, some starter would just keep throwing them back, being like, no, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. <laughs> I yeah. mean, in some respects, it would be it could be an opportunity, right, for the league to say, like, let's all come together and we're going to have you, you know, lab league it. We're going to have mm-hmm. you lab league this ball and find something that is sort of a nice middle point between the offensive environment we want and something you actually feel comfortable throwing. But it would be, you know, the size of that baseball. That just feels like big stuff to change and they'd be they'd be quirky even still be able to use it as a comp for the toilet flapper size you know (laughs) we never think about the knock-on effects of these things until (laughs) it's too late and suddenly you don't know what size toilet flap to get or what a grape versus a grapefruit is you know we're just (laughs) out here flying blind about Mm -hmm. fruit and baseballs Mm -hmm. yeah gotta be careful when you mess with the ball but i agree like it, it might have the intended effect, but then again, it might backfire horribly. And what would happen if you manufactured all of the balls and, right. and you put all your balls in that court, so to speak, or yeah. your, your and then they balls come in home, that basket? They I come guess home that's to roost. For. <laughs> yeah, right. Eggs in baskets, chickens roost. I guess those things go together. Birds so. <laughs> in hand versus the bush. Yeah, you would definitely want to have a lab league situation I think, before you change yeah. the ball in that sort of significant way. I just saw in the baseball subreddit that if two baseball games in which Albert Pujols homered had not been rained out, he would actually have 699 now because in 2003 and 2008, he hit home runs in games that were rained out before the completion of five <gasps> innings. And then they never made them up. Right. And now, of course, those would count and you would have just continued those games. They've changed the, the rain suspension rules. Policy. Yeah. yeah. So I guess there's precedent for this and that there used to be certain types of balls that were homers that are not now or that weren't homers that are now, like balls that went fair past the foul pole but then landed foul used to be foul balls i believe at one point and balls that bounced on the warning track and went over the fence those used to be homers at one point so you could play this game with babe ruth and and others as well but even with albert pujols who did not play like a century ago they have changed the rules within his very long career in such a way that you know if they played the whole thing over with the current rules maybe he'd have two more dingers and then he'd just need one more which would be well within reach, although three seems pretty within reach the way that he's going lately anyway. All right. Also a question along these lines from Jscape2000, again, Patreon supporter. So we just talked about the ball. He says, we're spending so much energy on fixing the balls, but maybe we should fix the bats. He says, slimmer, more flexible or less flexible? I don't know. I know I've read about how unwieldy Babe Ruth's bat was. Maybe we're due for another revolution there while we're moving second base and adding clocks. And Mike Z, listener, says, in listening to the recent discussion about what the effects of shrinking gloves would be, it reminded me of the different bats I used growing up. Mm. As I progressed through Little League and into high school ball, the rule regarding weight of the bats would change, but also the diameter. If I remember right, the under 10 leagues were allowed to use two and a quarter inch barrels, 10 to 14 could use two and three quarter inch barrels, and over 14 would use two and five eighths inches barrels. I could be remembering the ages wrong, but the idea of different barrel sizes is pretty commonly accepted and people don't think twice about it. 
What if we allow major leaguers to use bats slightly bigger in diameter? I don't think they would have a problem adjusting, and in theory, would help them make more contact with the absolutely nasty pitches we see today. One hesitation I had initially was that it would just produce more foul balls, and we've got enough of those already, but the more I think about it, I think we would trade some foul balls for balls in play and some whiffs for fouls, which might end up in a net zero change in foul tips. Has this idea been proposed before? I am definitely in Ben's camp of trying to fix baseball without making an obtrusive on-the-field rule change. This, to me, would be similar to the pitcher limit. Love the idea in how little it would seem to fundamentally change the rules. I liken this to when the mound was lowered. Although not usually considered a piece of equipment for the pitchers, one could argue the mound is just that. Is it time to alter the hitter's equipment to give them back an edge? I guess this is why things are complicated. It's like... When you talk about fixing baseball, even if we agree on what we mean by that and what we want baseball to look like, which people don't (laughs) all agree about that, there are a zillion ways you could theoretically achieve that. So MLB has picked some ways. Right. And yeah, you could make the ball bigger or make the bet bigger (laughs) or any any number of ways that in theory – could work potentially, and, and all of them have some sort of risk or, or drawback. So what do you think of the idea of just changing the bats? Because as we speak, the rulebook says the bat shall be a smooth, round stick, not more than 2.61 inches in diameter at the thickest part, and not more than 42 inches in length. The bat shall be one piece of solid wood. And no laminated or experimental bats shall be used in a professional game until the manufacturer has secured approval from the rules committee. And that's uh, basically it when it comes to bat rules. There are also some some rules about the cups at the end, the indentation, right. and the bat handle diameter. But really, like it wouldn't be, you know, did anyone know it was 2.61 inches if we just uh, bump that up a little bit? Would anyone notice? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, I think I would probably look to equipment before I would look to positioning changes. I still think that you're probably getting the most bang for your buck by altering things on the pitching side to be more conducive to hitting than you necessarily are monkeying with the hitter's equipment to do the other thing. Because it still doesn't, you know, it doesn't solve... The problem of everybody like being able to throw 96 with a wipeout slider, right? Like Mm -hmm. an improved quote unquote bat doesn't change that piece of it, right? So I, it wouldn't maybe be the first place that I would start, but it probably would be a place that I would look at prior to messing with the rules. And it seems like the sort of thing that, you know, you could probably simulate in controlled settings fairly well to get a sense of what the impact would be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And like, we know that it makes, that the bat obviously makes some amount of difference. Like, I remember when they were doing the Home Run Derby broadcast this year, there was a lot of discussion about Julio's bat and like how they had thought about what bat he should use. And and then like he did Julio stuff. And some of that is that he's Julio Rodriguez, right? So like, you know... (laughs) (laughs) He's got a a pretty wide margin of error around the bat, I would imagine. But even a a really good hitter like him thought, here is a place where I can press potentially a small advantage. So yeah, it's probably worth looking at. I I guess that like the thing, the other thing 
and I don't remember if we mentioned this when we were talking about the rule changes, but I know we talked about it when we were talking about the their sort of experimentation with the rule changes in independent ball and in the minors. Like, try one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, try, if you're going to try stuff with bats, like, do that and leave the other stuff constant. I just have questions about the experimental design that they are engaging with. Sometimes I feel like I'm in, like, my research methods class in grad school again. <laughs> yeah. There has been more of an effort to tailor bats to players' strengths and really have sabermetric bat design. Sure. You know, Saris has written about this, that there are companies that at least purport to give you a slight edge, you know, working within the rules and the right. allowable specifications, but just looking for just the perfect length and weight and balance and dimensions just based on the individual hitter's swing done in sort of a, a scientific way. Right. I can't vouch for how much of a difference that makes, but hitters are paying more attention to that. So it's not just... Ichiro, who has his special carrying case and treats his bats in a, a very particular way, more hitters are getting in oh, yeah. these days. So there's that. But again, that is working within what's allowed. And there's been variation in these things. I mean, it's been a while, I guess, since the bat rules have been changed or the major ones. But you know, I'm reading this page here about in 1885 – the National League made some changes to the bats. It was then legal to have 18 inches of the handle wrapped in twine and one side of the bat was allowed to be flat. So that's what they allowed for a period there. The American Association adopted this rule when they followed the same rules as the National League in 1887. In 1893, the bat was no longer allowed to be flat on one side, but was required to be round. And the length was still limited to 42 inches, and the thickness of the thickest part was two and a half inches, and then the thickness was increased to two and three quarters inches in 1895 and, and hasn't really budged. But for a few years there, you could have kind of a flat bat on one side, which really helped with bunting. I bet. <laughs> yeah. So not saying that we bring back flat bats, but- You're advocating a, a... for bunting. I get it. And sacrifice <laughs> bunting in particular. Yeah, specifically. That's, yeah. Yeah. You're like, fan. look, I haven't seen enough of this lately. Let's yeah, get on it. Really miss those sack bunts. Bring them back. <laughs> but yeah, you can tamper a little bit and, and tinker with the bats. It has been done before. So- it's not like, you know, from the day that the rules were laid down, bats have been exactly the same. And so they must remain the same forever. I think there's a little room to, to tinker with those and that sure. might not be the worst idea. You'd have to be careful because it, it's kind of like the whole quirk bat debate where it's like, well, does this actually help? Because there's a trade-off where, well, if you have a heavier bat, then you can get more force behind your swing and impart more force to the bat. But also, you might have to compromise on bat speed a bit, and you might not be able to whip it around quite as quickly, and you might not have as great control of the bat. And so there's the thought that maybe corking your bat doesn't actually help because, yeah, maybe you can swing a little faster, but you're swinging a, a lighter bat that is not actually delivering and, and transferring the same force to the ball. So there's kind of a trade-off there between weight and just like how fast you can swing it and how much sure. force you can supply as the hitter. So if you were just to make it 
heavier, let's say, then that might not actually help you because you might have some sacrifice swinging-wise. So how much can you actually change it without changing the materials in in some way? I don't know exactly. So there might be a, a bit of a limitation there. But maybe they could just make the bat bigger without actually being heavier and and without compromising so much in how much force gets imparted to the ball. I don't know. Probably. So something to consider, I suppose. We were talking last time about what the new low stakes situation to to boo players would Mm -hmm. be now that you won't be able to boo for just incessant pickoff attempt throws because those will be capped at two. Maybe it is what you just suggested, just the pitcher asking for a new ball over and over and and tossing balls out of play as unacceptable to them. Yeah. Although I I guess that's kind of at the umpire's discretion probably too, right? Like you can't just do that indefinitely forever. Well, sure, but like so is – like so – I mean I know this is about to get stricter, but like at the moment, like so is calling for time. We still right. do that sometimes, although that's yep. about to change. So yeah. yeah, maybe this is the new maybe this is the new hotness when it comes to stuff that we want to boo so that we can, you know, fill the the discordant vibe hole. That's weird. We still have mound visits. I know that they're they're limited in quantity and, and, and also in length. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But oh. you can still boo a mound visit, I guess, for yeah. now. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, let's wrap up with the past blast. And this is the first solo past blast provided by new past blaster, Jacob Pomeranke. So, Jacob, I teed him up last time when we had Richard Hirschberger on. There's been a changing of the guard, a passing of the baton here. And Jacob is taking us through the first half or so of the 20th century, at least, after Richard took us through the last half of the 19th century. So Jacob, as I mentioned, is Sabre's director of editorial content, and he's also the chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. He is an expert on the Black Sox. So when we get to the 1919 period, he will have (laughs) plenty to choose from for Pass Blast. But today we are talking about 1902 because this is episode 1902. And Jacob says... The relevant newspaper quote is not very long or detailed, but it's the only contemporary mention of this really cool moment that's never happened before or since. So 1902, he says, is the first and only MLB matchup of two deaf players. Mm. So on May 16th, 1902, a historic meeting took place at Cincinnati's brand new ballpark called Palace of the Fans. Two deaf players appeared in the same game for the first and so far the only time in Major League history. In the bottom of the first inning, red center fielder William Hoy led off against Luther Taylor of the New York Giants. As the Cincinnati Enquirer reported, when Hoy stepped up to the plate, he paused for a minute and used sign language to mark the occasion. This is the quote, Hoy signaled, I'm glad to see you, to his brother mute, the newspaper says, and then soaked a leadoff single to center. Hmm. Hoy was almost 40 years old, and in the final season of a decorated 14-year career, he went two for four and scored a run, but Taylor and the Giants won the game five to three. Hoy and Taylor were friends off the field and would remain so for the rest of their lives. Cool. 
They were part of a small baseball fraternity of deaf players. In that less sensitive era, nearly all of them were saddled with the unfortunate nickname of dummy because of their disability. Yeah. Baseball reference has since changed the display name for Hoy. I believe I recall reading that he used that nickname himself, that he did not seem to object to it, or or at least he went along with it. But who knows? Certainly sounds derogatory to modern ears. So you will usually no longer see his name displayed that That way. That way, yeah. Yeah. Jacob continues, after winning more than 100 games for the Giants, Luther Taylor went on to teach and coach at schools for the deaf in Kansas and Illinois. One of his students, Dick Sipek, made it to the big leagues with the Reds in 1945. Sipek was the only fully deaf player in the major leagues for 80 years until Curtis Pride joined the Montreal Expos in 1993. Hmm. Yeah. Well, all right then. Good pass blast. Yeah, Yeah, good pass blast. All right. Thank you, Jacob. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. By the way, we talked about Mike Trout's streak of six consecutive games with a home run. Well, he made it seven on Monday. He's now one short of the record set by Ken Griffey Jr., eight games in a row. Trout Notani just battling for second place in the AL home run race. Really wish we could see Trout's numbers if he had been healthy this whole season. Then again, we could say the same about last season too, and some other seasons. Point is, he's still awesome. And if you want to be awesome, there's a segue, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Hector Rodriguez, Doug Graham, Jason Nasi, Graham Stewart, and Melissa Danielson. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters get access to the Patreon Discord group, which is a wonderful forum. They also get access to monthly bonus episodes that Meg and I publish, plus discounts on merch, access to playoff live streams, and more. Please do check it out. And please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can also contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or reach us via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. If there was a better way to go Cheating me mean I'll make the most of it I'm an extraordinary machine